Hey, let me, let me add my welcome and also see college folks back with us. Welcome to the college folks uh, here on break. Good to see you guys with us too. Uh, can I go ahead and say Merry Christmas? Is it too early to say that? Merry Christmas. Okay. Um, as long as it's not March, it's not too early. Okay. Thank you. Um, one other point of business, and it's really, it's, it's less business and more encouragement, but uh, one other thing I've been announcing for the last few weeks, kind of where we are as a church as we enter the end of the year, and I just want to emphasize that again one more time this morning. Christmas is a time we celebrate giving, and uh, primarily it's God giving us Jesus, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Christmas is a season of giving, celebrating God's gift to us, and we will be giving gifts to others as well. Uh, I'm sure all of us will be doing that. So my question this morning is, uh, how much are you giving? (laughs) Just kidding, don't answer that. Uh, But how much are you giving to other people? How much are you giving to God? Or let me put it this way. Some of us will spend more money giving Christmas this year than we will spend giving to God all year. Yikes. That's the truth. And that can be uh, heavy, that can be shameful, but I would like to challenge you this morning. As you leave here, as you drive away, as you have lunch today, I would like you to think about your giving this season, not just to your family, not just to your neighbors and friends, but I'd like you to think about your giving back to God. And I've said the last few weeks, we have a goal in December. We need to raise about $100,000 to finish the year even. Uh, to, just to give you some perspective, we collected $39,000 in November. So that's a, that's a goal. It's a big goal, but it's a goal that we feel like is in reach based upon what uh, our giving has been in previous Decembers. And I said that goal over the last few weeks, $100,000, but this week it was impressed upon me. Here's, here's what I think might be a better goal, okay? Now, I'm not taking back that goal, okay? We still need to collect $100,000, but here's what I think would be a better goal. And I think a goal that would please uh, God even more than reaching $100,000 as a church family. I think the better goal is that every family that calls Centennial Church their home contribute in December. Every family, not just the core, not just the people that are members, but every family that's part of Centennial Church would give towards that year-end goal. And, and another more practical way to measure it is, how about this? How about all of us give more in December than we gave in November? Think we could do that? I haven't talked to my wife about this yet, okay? So this is news to her as well, okay? <laughs> but this is just what God, I feel, has led on my heart. Not that we would just raise $100,000, but we would all be part of reaching that goal and giving back to God and helping the ministry of Centennial Church and our missions partners around the world, okay? I want to uh, ask you to pray about that. I want to invite you to do that, to every person here, every person a part of our family, to give in December and for us to also give more in December than we gave in November. And if you didn't give in November, then you've got it easy. (laughs) I mean, slam dunk, But seriously, um, we worship not only through song, we worship not only through scripture, we worship not only as a community loving one another, we also worship through giving. And you have an opportunity to do that online. You can do that as we celebrate communion later. The giving baskets are in the back. If you want to drop a check or cash in there or you can give online, well, I encourage you 
uh, to join us as we have this season of giving to also give back to God, who, quite frankly, has given us everything. Amen. So let me, let me pray and uh, ask God to lead us in this and also ask God uh, just to work as we open up his word this morning. Okay, will you pray with me? Father God, we uh, just come to you in this season of joy, in this season of celebration, and uh, we thank you, God, that you are a generous God, that you loved us so much that you gave us your one and only son whom we celebrate this Advent season. God, would you uh, impress upon our hearts differently, uniquely in every family and every heart here how we can give back to you in response to your generosity to us, not uh, out of guilt for what the preacher says, but out of love and gratitude for what you have done for us. Would you please move in our hearts, each heart here, specifically how to do that, how to be generous in our giving this month. Help us, God. And Holy Spirit, as we open uh, the Word of God this morning, we ask that you would superintend, that you would orchestrate our time here this morning, that... uh, that we would hear from you, that in the hustle and bustle of this season and whatever uh, things are coming to our minds, even as we pray right now, things that we need to get done, things that we forgot about, Lord, that uh, we would put those aside for a minute and we would hear from you. We don't need a Hallmark card. We do not need to hear advertisements or commercials about what we need. God, we need and we want to hear from you. And so I pray, God, through your holy word, you would speak to us this morning, challenge us, comfort us, and draw us closer to Jesus in these moments. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. So I hope that you won't think that I'm a Scrooge because I say this, but let me go ahead and say it, okay? Christmas is often a time of posturing. You know what I mean? Often a time of looking good, and I introduced this series, this concept, two weeks ago, and we talked about the Christmas tree. I mean, we're all frantic to get the Christmas tree out and to have it look good and to decorate it so it's nice, and and some people in our neighborhoods, it's like a competition who can have the best lights out front, and we're posturing, and we're setting the table for our guests for everything to look good and the tree to look fine and the presents around the tree to look good and sometimes Christmas can be all about the decor and the tinsel and less about the substance itself which is the gift of Jesus and sometimes we can even sense this posturing uh, in our children. Can I get an amen? Like, you go, the closer you get to the 25th, it's like the nicer and more helpful and kind your children are because they know this threat, right, of naughty or nice. And, hey, Dad, is there anything I can do to help you today? And I'm like, ah, what's, where'd this come from? You know, but it's not just the kids. I mean, we we have a tendency to to posture as well, right? Uh, how many of you receive uh, Christmas cards and Christmas letters? I mean, those those Christmas letters. I, we have a few friends that don't just send the card; they send a letter. And here's an update of what's happening with Dad, and he got a promotion, and we took this trip in the summer, and the kids are doing great, and so and so made all state in baseball, and we you know blessings to you, happy holidays, whatever you know, signing off with the Smith family or whatever. 
Imagine, okay, for a moment, if you got one of those Christmas cards that didn't just have the highlights, but had the lowlights. I mean, imagine if it were not edited to the highlights of the year, but the really bummer parts. You know, it's like, well, you know, dad's really bored with his job. He's kind of twiddling his thumbs, maybe putting out some resumes. We started marriage counseling. Things have been really rocky the last six months. Uh, little, little Johnny is, uh, is failing math. We got him a tutor, you know, and our teenage daughter got pregnant, you know. Happy holiday. You know, that's not the stuff that we put in our cards, Right? That doesn't make the yearly highlight. Let me tell you what else is not uh, accurate. Your Christmas cards, my Christmas cards, our, our pictures, here's the family, right? And some of you, I've received your Christmas cards already, and they're beautiful. And they're on our refrigerator. We love them. Here's my favorite one from a couple years ago. Okay, this is old, but this, this is actually one of my favorite Christmas cards that we have ever done. And it's actually still on my screensaver. I mean, isn't that great? That was before Truett, but even the dog, does it, the dog looks regal. Let <laughs> me just look at that for a second. Sorry, I just, but let me, let me tell you the real truth about that picture, okay? Let me tell you the real truth about that picture. A couple years ago, we got in the car. We said, get dressed. We're getting in the car. We're going to go take a family picture. And both children were like, yes, family pictures. Let's rock this thing. No, that wasn't the reaction. Oh, yeah. And, and though this picture looks great, do you know how cold it was this fall day? You can't tell. This is over in Adriatica, and I remember holding my daughter because she's shivering. I remember that dog on a leash there running mom toward the water. And this right here is 1 250th second of the afternoon. And do you know how many pictures were taken? A lot. We try to show our best. We try to look our best. We, we, we put our best foot forward. We edit to accentuate the good. We Photoshop for enhancement, right? That's what we do. But the gospel writer Matthew, as he begins this story of Christmas does not do that. He does not edit out the bad. He does not Photoshop Jesus' resume. He tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's what we've been talking about these weeks is the broken branches and God's grace. The broken branches of Jesus' family tree. And so this morning, again, I... Uh, encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the first six verses and a couple other characters in Jesus' family tree, in his lineage that uh, I think show us an incredible, incredible amount of honesty and an amazing amount of grace to these Bible characters and grace for us. So Matthew chapter 1, and I want to invite you just to stand with me in honor and respect of God's word. I'll read the first six verses. You can read along with me, and then we will uh, jump in here, okay? Beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar, 
and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is God's word. You can be seated. Six verses, a lot of names. We looked two weeks ago at the names Judah and Tamar, and last week, Brother Dan did a wonderful job showing us the story of Ruth, the Moabitess. And this morning, we're going to concentrate uh, on another couple, and that's in verse 6. David the king, he gets this title, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We'll get to that in just a second. But first of all, first, first point this morning, now let me just give you the three points if you're a note taker, okay? Here's the three points. Christmas is a true story. Christmas is a story of grace. And thirdly, Jesus is the climax and point of the story, okay? That's where we're going today. First of all, Christmas is a true story. Look at how Matthew begins his gospel, his, his letter, his story about Jesus' life. And it doesn't begin like this. Once upon a time. It also doesn't begin a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Why does it not do that? Because Matthew is wanting to let us know in the nature and the writing of his time in the first century that this is a true story. When we hear once upon a time, we know by default, just by experience, that we are now going into fairy tale world, right? We are going into myth. When we read in a galaxy a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, we know where we're going, right? We know where we're headed. And Matthew gives us this genealogy, and he says the book of the genealogy, or in Greek, it actually says Genesis. The Genesis of Jesus the Christ. And so a Greek reader would, would hear that and know Matthew here is giving us the new Genesis, the new beginning. And so what I want you to hear this morning is that the story of Christmas is not a hallmark inspirational. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time uh, for you to hear or to watch on hallmark and walk away and feel good about things and go, just go on about your business, eat some cookies and go shopping and have a kind of a, a feeling of, of nicety within your soul. He begins this story by saying this is a genealogy or in uh, ancient times, this is like a resume. This is an ancient resume. This is the genealogy, the family tree that Jesus comes from. The story of Christmas is not a legend, is not a fable, is not something made up, but it's a record of history. And he aligns this coming of Jesus with the line of prophets and promised kings that Israel, God's chosen people, had been expecting for centuries. The Christmas story is a true story. He could have just begun in verse 18. Look down at verse 18. Verse 18 begins like this. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. If you and I were writing this story, we might begin at verse 18, but Matthew doesn't do that. He begins at verse 1. And most of us, when we gather around the tree or the table next weekend, we, when we read the Christmas story, we won't begin at verse 1. We'll begin at verse 18, or the more popular version, Luke chapter 2. But this 
first 17 verses, Matthew is not wasting space here. He's not wasting our time, his time, writing all these names that are often hard to pronounce. He is saying, Jesus is the beginning of a new thing, but is a continuation of what God has been doing through Israel for centuries, for millennia. Another reason that we know that uh, the story of one of many reasons we know that the story of Jesus and the story of Christmas is not fable or legend is if, if you were writing a fable, if you were writing a legend, if you were just trying to uh, tweak the truth to get people to believe in Christianity, why would you place all these misfits and mismatches in the story? Why would you highlight all these people that screwed up? If you're wanting to get people to believe in Jesus, why would you say in the first century that he came from an unwed teenage mother? Who's going to believe that? The only reason they would believe it, the only reason they would write it like that, is if it really happened. Because it doesn't make Matthew's case or it doesn't make Jesus' case look that convincing because of all the mismatches and misfits and broken branches in this story. Therefore, it, gets, it gives credence to the truthfulness of the story. And not only is Christmas a true story, but secondly, Christmas is a story of grace. It's a story of grace. And we see that because the story of Christmas is the story of God coming to us, God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Every other religion, every other uh, system of belief is not God come to us, but man go to God. So the Buddha says, if you have these four noble truths, you can find religious experience. Or Islam says, if, if you obey and you're a good person, Allah might have mercy on you. So you're trying to get to God. And the story of Christmas is a story of grace. It's not us getting to God, but it's God coming to us in humanity. It's a story of grace, and not only just the fact that God would come to us, but as we've been examining in this passage, the unseemly, undeserving characters that are a part of Jesus' family tree. As I said earlier, this uh, genealogy and gene genealogies in the ancient world were like resumes, and you want to make that resume, you, you want that resume to reflect everything good about you. So we know from history that Herod the Great doctored his genealogy. He left out people that he was embarrassed by or people that weren't of the right tribes or classes or things like that. But Matthew instead is not doctoring this resume. He's actually highlighting people that most would be embarrassed by or would have a tendency to Photoshop out and just kind of leave out the, that part of the picture. We do this today, right, with our modern resumes. Uh, you may not doctor it up, but you might leave out some things, right? If you, if you took a job and you were only at that job 11 months, 12 months, you might not list that on your resume, right? You'd leave that off because eh, that, may, that doesn't help things. It kind of looks like I, that, you know, that's, that's not the best. I've, I've seen resumes, some resumes, where a GPA score is on the resume. Hey, 4.0 in undergrad, right? There's other resumes where that GPA is strangely missing, right? You know, if you, if you finish college with a 2.8, you're not putting that on your resume, right? No offense to those of you that had 2.8 uh, in your college, but you, you should have tried a little harder. 
If you have great references, if you know a reference, this person's a CEO or an executive vice president, you're going you're gonna to puff your resume up to make you look good. You're going to leave out some of those other things. And Matthew doesn't leave out the tough parts. And so we have in Matthew chapter 1 all these unseemly, undeserving characters. A few weeks ago, uh, we saw Judah and Tamar. And if you missed that message, here's the summary of it. Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law. As she poses as a prostitute, he gets his daughter. This is incest. And, and this is the history. This is the family line that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come through. There's gender, uh, there's gender outsiders here. If you were doing a, a genealogy in the ancient world, you wouldn't include the five women in your genealogy. You would, you would keep it male only. And Matthew breaks that standard and mentions the women who were outsiders. Not only uh, outsiders of gender, but also outsiders of race. Last week, Dan uh, took us to the story of, of Ruth, the Moabitess. Uh, a people group that was despised and hated by Israel. And nevertheless, God uses this Moabitess who takes her life in her own hands as she goes back into Israel. And this is the family line that Jesus comes from. Not only gender outsiders, not only racial outsiders, but also moral outsiders. Again, Rahab is mentioned here. We won't have time to look at Rahab. Rahab what? Rahab, the prostitute. Judah, Tamar, and this morning, verse 6, David and Bathsheba. Look again, verse 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Hey, that's good. You want David, the king, on your resume. But then Matthew doesn't hold back. He says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Matthew is specifically honing in on here. Don't forget this piece. By the wife of Uriah. And this is, not, this is not a slam to Bathsheba that he doesn't say her name. This is a slam to David. You were supposed to be David out at war with your troops. And you stayed back and you had an affair with a married woman who happened to be married to one of your friends. Uriah is... We find out in 1 Chronicles and 1 Samuel that Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his most valiant warriors. And while he's off warring for David, David sees his wife. And this story is in 2 Samuel excuse me, chapter 11 and 12. If you want to flip there, I'm just going to summarize it for you. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David, the first few verses there, while uh, the time when... In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, and Joab was the commander, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then, verse 2 and following, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. 
Time passes, verse 5, and the woman conceived and she, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. What does David do? Freaks out, probably, yes. Doesn't say that, uh, implied. David sends for Uriah. He's going to try to frame Uriah. He's going to try to get Uriah to come back from the battlefield, sleep with his wife, and then, hey, it's not, not my doing. So he has Uriah come back, and he talks to Uriah and says, says, now that I've given you drink, now congratulated, you go home and be with your wife. And Uriah is of such character and feels so, uh, just so necessary that he not enjoy himself while his brothers are on the battlefield that he sleeps outside the, David's palace and doesn't go to be with his wife. Night two comes. David said, that didn't work. I better get him a little more liquored up. So he gets him more liquored up, thinking, hey, now he'll go home, back and be with his wife. And again, he sleeps beside the palace. So what does David do? David sends a letter to Joab, the commander, and says, hey, when the battle gets going and things get rough, send this guy, Uriah, up to the front where he'll be easily attacked and killed. And he hands this death letter, this death proclamation to Uriah to carry himself back to Joab. And sure enough, in battle, Uriah dies. The message gets back to David. And David then takes Bathsheba as his wife. And this is the great hero of the Bible, right? The man after God's own heart, the, the king, the, the person that you want on, on your resume. And yet here is a guy that is still fallen, bent, crooked, twisted, and in need of God's grace. What does that mean for you and me? Hope. Hope. Amen. Amen. It means that we can be people who are twisted, make stupid decisions, wreck our life nearly, and that God can redeem it and make it something out, make something out of the mess that it was. There was a consequence to David's sin. Of course, the, the child that was conceived died, but Solomon comes out of the mess of Bathsheba. The next king is born from this adulterous relationship, this relationship that started as an adulterous relationship. And Solomon is also named Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. What is this story of David and Bathsheba? What are all these stories? Judah and Tamar, Ruth, what, what, what do all of these stories tell us? What do they teach us? That God's grace covers all our sin and shame. All our sin and shame. There's an old hymn some of you probably grew up on this, know this an old hymn that says, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Feel unworthy of God? Feel like you've messed up? Here's a list of people in Jesus' own family that have messed up, that seem irreversible, and yet God redeems and makes a message out of the mess. What is it this morning, what is it this Christmas season that has you hung up in guilt, unable to receive God's grace, unable to celebrate 
God's grace. What is it that you're holding on to? What stain is it that you're reminded of that you think, God could never use me, God could never forgive me? Maybe it's an adulterous relationship. Maybe it's something that you took that wasn't yours. But let me tell you this, there is no stain so permanent that the blood of Jesus does not wash it white as snow. That's the promise of the prophet Isaiah where it says, though your, though your sins are scarlet, I will wash them white as snow. Some of us, maybe adultery has not been your deal. Maybe pornography has not been your deal. You've never murdered someone and, and, and you're feeling pretty good about yourself right now. You know, if you, if you had to take a test, all right, from 1 to 10, kind of how good of a person you are, where would you score yourself from 1 to 10? Number, number 1 is, is bad, evil. Number 10 is, is right up there with Jesus, right? If you had to rank yourself 1 to 10, where would you fall in terms of your integrity, in terms of, of your morality? How good of a person are you? And I bet a lot, I'm looking at this room filled of pretty good people, and I bet a lot of us would, would put our ranking anywhere from five or six all the way up to maybe nine, maybe. Now, here's the bad news. If you rank yourself from six to nine, or God forbid you think you're a 10, you may be in more danger than David and Bathsheba and Judah and Tamar because you think you've got it together and therefore you don't need grace. But everybody in this room needs grace, either, either for our unrighteousness or for our self-righteousness. We are all sinners in need of grace. One of the great gifts of my wife, one of the many, is that she keeps a spectacular home. I mean, if you've been to her, it's clean. She's always cleaning. She loves a clean home. And if you were to walk into our house, as some, as some of you had, you're like, this is, this is a really nice house, and it's really clean. But guess what? If you were to come over to my house and you were to lift up the couch uh, cushions, you would find granola bar wrappers. You would find little Fruit Loop things, <laughs> smashed up cereal, because guess what? Even in the cleanest of homes, there's dirt there's filth in the crevices. I mean, we, we run that Swiffer, and by we, I mean me, we run that Swiffer, and, and I think it looks pretty good. And you get that Swiffer around, and you pick it back up, and dog hair in the cleanest of homes. And you may look at this list of sketchy characters and think, that's not me. But under the cushions, in the dark, in your heart of hearts, it may not be adultery, it may not be pornography, it may not be murder, but there's jealousy, there's pride, there's envy, and there's also a whole lot of shame that maybe you haven't become what you really think you're supposed to be. See, here's the truth. Even the nice need grace, and even the naughty can receive grace. Even the nice need grace, and even the naughty can receive grace. And that is the good news of Matthew chapter 1, that these people that don't have it together are used in the family of God to bring about the Messiah. And David does. This is early in his reign. David does become, he is a man after God's own heart, even though an adulterer and a murderer. And so I want to ask you again this morning, what stain do you feel is so permanent 
that the blood of Jesus will not wash you clean? What guilt is holding you back from raising your hands in a moment and celebrating Jesus who has come, singing from the top of your lungs because God's grace is sufficient even for the worst of our sins? Christmas can be about posturing. But the true meaning of Christmas, the coming of Jesus, is so that you can understand that wretch that you are, guilty as you are, the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all guilt and shame. So you don't have to have the perfect picture. You don't have to have the perfect tree. You don't have to have the perfect life because Jesus lived the perfect life and he gives his righteousness as a gift to those who will simply trust in him. So I'm begging you today, if it's that divorce that you just can't get over, get over it. That sin that you've never confessed, confess it and receive the grace of Jesus. So deep. God's grace, deeper than all our sin and shame. Finally, Jesus is the climax and point of the story. See, in Matthew chapter 1, there's only one perfect person. There's only one true hero. And that hero is not King David. That hero is King Jesus. And all of chapter 1 points to Jesus, and all of Matthew and all of the Scripture points to Jesus, the only perfect person. It starts off in verse 1, calling him Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus means Savior. Matthew 1.21, this is the point of it. Joseph, Joseph hears from the angel, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the point of Jesus coming, that he would save us from our sins. The Christ, the anointed one. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. He's the son of David, the one promised to David that his kingdom would never end, that the scepter would not depart from the house of Judah. And he's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the son of Abraham. In Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God told Abraham, through you, I will bless the whole world. And what is that blessing? We find out in Jesus that that blessing is Jesus himself, the son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. He is the climax and the point of the whole story. And if you read, Verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, which means Messiah, anointed one. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So you have to ask yourself here, what's the deal? Why has Matthew arranged this in 14, 14, 14? Well, we can't be totally sure about this. There's definitely some poetry here. There's definitely some times that he's telescoped and skipped some generations, but he's highlighting the generations that he chose to highlight. But if you look at it carefully, this is one suggestion that's been offered that I I find convincing. 
is you have 14, 14, and 14. That's one, two sevens, right? The first 14. The second 14s is three, four sevens. The third 14 is five, six sevens. Seven is the number of perfection. And what happens after the sixth seventh? The seventh seven comes. The perfection of perfection. And Jesus is the seventh seven. He's the perfect one come for sinners like you and me, no matter how deep the stain. What can wash away our sins? Only the blood of Jesus. Born in a stable, crucified on a cross, risen from the grave. Jesus is the point and climax of it all. I'd like you to bow your heads with me, and maybe you're here this morning and you thought that you could earn favor with God through your niceness. And what you've realized is that even the nicest have some naughty. And it's only Jesus that can save you from your sin. Nothing that you can do, nothing that you could ever do to merit his love, but simply the gift that he's given you in the blood of Jesus. And I want to give you an opportunity right now, just in the quietness of your heart, just to pray along with me and receive the gift of Christmas, receive Jesus himself. You might want to pray something like this. Jesus, I recognize the sin in my heart, sin of unrighteousness, sin of self-righteousness. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have come to forgive me of every stain, of every sin that I've committed that I will commit. And I trust you, Jesus, to save me and to bring me in to God's family, to fill me with the Holy Spirit and give me new life. Thank you, Jesus, for coming for me. For those of us that have walked with Jesus a while, for those of us that have received him before, what I want us to walk away this morning knowing is that every sin has been covered. Every stain has been made white. And that we are reminded of that even as we come to the table this morning. That his body was broken for us, that his blood was spilled for us so that nothing could separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus. Father God, though we are not worthy, we could never come to you. We thank you so much that you have come to us in Jesus. And I pray that right now, even in this moment, you would free us of the pressure, the performance to look good, to have the event go perfectly, to make everyone pleased with the gifts, to make the family look better than it is. That we would just take a deep breath and rest in your grace. Rest in your acceptance of us. God, may we celebrate you this season as we never have before. 
It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.